Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Bryce, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to have you. Our mutual friend, JJ Virgin, speaks so highly of you. Uh, and you are the winner of her Mindshare Future of Health Award. So congratulations, and it's great to have you because if JJ says someone is a star, then they are a star. So welcome. I appreciate that. And clearly she's incredibly bright if she's saying that I'm a star. She knows her stuff. So <laughs> so let's talk a bit about your background and your area of specialization. So let's start there. So I think it's probably helpful for me to start just with my my story in terms of how I got into this this space, and then we can talk all about vision therapy and what's involved there. Um, you know, for me, it all kind of began in first grade, um, and I remember this fall afternoon where uh, I was I was on the soccer field at Cardrock Springs Elementary School, and and we were playing uh, the Purple People Eaters, and there was this moment I can remember as if it was yesterday where. I'm the lone defender. There's these three attackers coming at me on a breakaway, and they just completely uh, blow past me and score a goal. And I remember I completely froze. My le- like my legs were stuck in, in quicksand, and um, I remember feeling lost in space and afraid and helpless, and as if I just let my teammates down, almost giving away uh, the goal to the other team. At the time, I had these visual developmental delays, which meant trouble focusing my eyes and poor depth perception and my eyes didn't work together well as a team, um, causing me really to to freeze in moments where uh, I should have sprung into action. So that night at the dinner table uh, with my parents, I had a complete breakdown, tears pouring out. I shared how I didn't know where to be on the field or what to do and um, how in the classroom, I, I couldn't even see what the teacher was writing on the board, having to often ask my friends, you know, what does that say? Or even walk up and pretend I was sharpening my pencil uh, to sneak a peek at closer at what the teacher was writing. Uh, and because of my vision, I had th- this negative confidence and I often felt like uh, a turtle retreating you know, to my shell with so many aspects of life. And fortunately, I was born to a mother who was an occupational therapist and a father who was a developmental optometrist. And it wasn't really until this breakdown that they put all the pieces truly together um, and from that point forward, my dad went all in and dedicated his career to helping me and with this subspecialty of, of developmental optometry. Uh, so over the next several years, I did consistent vision therapy and sensory integration based occupational therapy every week. Uh, and I, you know, I struggled learning to read and was a reluctant reader and often, often flying through other subjects like math to try and make up for my deficiencies with reading. And then probably fourth grade or so, it all came together. Uh, my eyes, my brain, my body finally all started kind of working together as a unified team. And this confidence just emerged. Um, I became a stud athlete. I started enjoying reading. I developed the interpersonal communication skills that are so important to life and really turned this disability in, into a strength where I could rely on vision to gain an advantage in the world. And I continued with these therapies and obviously transitioned from, you know, patient to clinician where for decades I've been studying this work, um, but I'm really dedicated to evolving vision therapy in terms of innovations, technological applications, practices, protocols, really to make vision therapy what it is today. Um, And on the other side of this now, we can accomplish in months, you know, what was done for me in years um, to help people who 
are buried with their heads in, in screens and phones and other tech-driven devices in this high-tech world we're living in where they're experiencing eye strain and headaches and blurry vision and environmentally induced nearsightedness where you know we can help them become screen fit so they can get their life back on track and turn deficits or weaknesses in, into these strengths or superpowers. And so personally, I have this obligation. I'm here so that others don't have to struggle the way that I did. And my focus is to just constantly refine the standards of, of practices of, of vision therapy to make it as accessible as possible, um, you know, for others who don't have who aren't don't have it available. Uh, while also continuing to innovate and be on the kind of the leading edge of new technologies, therapies, practices, uh, so we can make this efficient and sustainable for for many years to come. A lot to unpack there, and you know something you touched on in the beginning of your story is you're, you're playing sports and I know looking at your bio, you work with a lot of professional or, or very serious athletes is, is something you do. So can you talk about that work and how vision comes in to play? Cause it's very different from working with someone who's dealing with a, a disadvantage or an issue. You know, I think of an athlete, I think of someone, uh, obviously they may have a disadvantage or an issue with their eyesight or vision, uh, but, you, but you're, you're working with someone who really wants to optimize. Yeah, so you know, we're, we're all told from an early age, keep your eye on the ball, but we're never really taught or shown how to do that. And vision, of course, I'm biased. Vision is our first contact with, with sport, with life. It's how we derive meaning and then direct the appropriate action. And for athletes and for high-performing individuals and um, race car drivers or even people driving in daily life, how our brain responds to information and how we then uh, tell our body and our eyes how to react is so crucial to safety, but also to performance. And in so many different areas, if we can make improvements in even just the smallest little percentages, that can lead to a very large cumulative effect in terms of um, relying on vision to guide and lead, whether that's reacting more quickly to information around us or enhancing our side vision, our peripheral vision, or um, being able to understand not only where the ball is or where you are, but to be able to anticipate where it will be as so much is happening in such uh, rapid speed and dynamic nature with, with sports. Um, and so I think that the big distinction from my standpoint uh, that I hope all your viewers really take away from, from this talk is, is eyesight and vision are separate entities. Talk about that, please. Sure. So, you know, most doctors are uh, heavily focused on the pursuit of 2020 eyesight, but there's so much more to to vision and to life than just eyesight. So, eyesight I, I describe as you know the ability to to see letters on a letter chart or a street sign or what the teacher writes on the board in the classroom. Eyesight is really glasses. Vision is far more complex. Vision is is brain. And vision is how our brain tells our eyes how to move together and focus and converge and track and process information. And like I mentioned, how we understand meaning and then tell our body how to react. Uh, vision problems are brain problems, and they really need to be addressed uh, with that mindset. 
So what, what my, my specialty is and what I'm board certified, board certified in is vision therapy. And vision therapy is essentially uh, physical therapy for the brain through the eyes with the intention of rewiring the software of the brain to change how somebody takes in the world around them and processes visual information. So what's an example of that? An example of vision therapy? Yeah, like the average person who walks in your office. So, uh, so many people come into my office not knowing that vision therapy or vision was the missing piece to their puzzle. The medical world often lets, uh, lets a lot of us down in, in terms of being heavily focused on structure and intervention of disease, which absolutely is important and needs to be ruled out. But in terms of function and how our eyes are working together as a team and how well our eyes, brain, and body uh, are integrating information, that's really where, where, where I come in. And I see a lot of kids who are misdiagnosed with certain labels like ADD or ADHD or dyslexia um, based off of the symptoms and behaviors they're showing, but so often vision problems and functional vision problems can cause very similar, if not identical behaviors. And then it's a matter of what's the root cause of this. It's not like there's a blood test for ADD or ADHD. And if a child has trouble focusing their eyes and, and converging their eyes and uh, taking in what's in front of them and what's around them at the same time, it's going to be really hard to process that information. And very often that child's going to be distracted by what's in the periphery in a classroom setting where there's all this sensory input that they have to filter and process and, and know how to respond to. Um, we see a lot of people with eye turns or lazy eyes as an alternative to surgery to learn how to straighten their eyes, where so often eye muscle problems are not, uh, or so often eye turns are not eye muscle problems and no issue with eye muscle strength or length. It has to do with coordination and the brain not having learned how to use the eyes together as a team. Um, and so often rewiring the brain to change how somebody's using their vision can teach that coordination that was that was missed. Um, we see a lot of patients with uh, with head injuries and concussions where vision is impacted based off of um, the brain's ability to process all of the sensory input uh, that's occurring in life. There's more areas of our brain dedicated to processing vision than all of the other senses combined. And two-thirds of the neurons entering our brain originate from our eyes, so it's almost impossible not to have a head injury without vision being impacted. It's just a matter of at what level. And then again, athletes, people who are looking to get an advantage based off of having vision, that dominant sensory system, uh, really uh, guide and lead and allow them to be prepared for what's coming based off of their rapid processing of what's occurring. So a lot to unpack there. Let's let's start with 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 children, specifically ADD, ADHD, becoming a lot more prevalent. How do you think about the root cause there, and and how much you you mentioned vision being an issue? How big of an issue, if you had to guess, is it thirty percent, fifty percent? Is it just wildly misdiagnosed? It's it's a big topic and it's an important topic, but ADD and ADHD is feels like the diagnoses are just increasingly prevalent. It's alarming. 
I appreciate you bringing this up. Um, all visual skills are learned skills. When every child is born, uh, that child does not have the ability to use their eyes together as a team and to focus and to track and the world's even in black and white. And I'm sure you've seen from your daughters, uh, the eyes look like they're pointing all over the place at times, enough to really terrify a lot of young parents. We learn how to use our eyes. We learn how to see. We learn how to develop vision. And from crawling and walking and developing the bilateral immigration, the use of both sides of the body, and then having the world be static to all of a sudden dynamic, that's how we learn how to use our eyes together. And so that's something that's either learned well or not learned as well as it could be. I would say now more than ever, kids are being introduced to screens and technology at earlier and earlier ages and often being asked to read in kindergarten before they're visually ready or before they have the visual development in place. And so often symptoms emerge like trouble focusing, trouble attending, trouble tracking the eyes, trouble taking in information with, with a sustained near concentration task. And, you know, I think like we mentioned before, the medical world is so quick to just label these behaviors. But I, I would say that, um, at least, well, we know at least 10% of, we know at least one out of 10 kids has a vision problem significant enough to impact learning. We also know that convergence insufficiency or fragile eye coordination up close contributes to difficulty attending. And if it's trouble focus, if you, one has trouble focusing their eyes, they're going to have that much more trouble focusing their mind. So from my standpoint, asking a child to do something or to function in a way where they don't have the skills or foundation in place to meet those demands, they either avoid or they adapt. Avoidance looks often like ADD or ADHD, and adaptations are really the root cause of the majority of vision problems, which are brain problems, and the majority of these functional vision problems are treatable and avoidable if we're intentional with what we're asking our children to do. So what do you mean by adaptations as being the cause? If we take screens, for instance, screens are uh, high energy, sh low wavelength light with a two dimensional world. And we're asking our kids to uh, spend time on screens. And very often kids are grabbing screens before they're visually ready. What that means is having to explore a two-dimensional environment and not allow for movement and being stuck inside in a dark room and very often myopia, let's say, or nearsightedness emerges so early in life because of all of this visual stress. Stress from our world is how as humans uh, we adapt and so many vision problems are in response to that stress where we don't have the visual skills or abilities in place to be able to support what's being asked of us. So myopia or nearsightedness from a functional standpoint has to do with all this visual stress at near and then the symptom is distance blur and very often the eye care world treats the symptom, which oftentimes is needed, which is here's a pair of glasses. 
And then that can become the new normal. We can then adapt to that, that lens or that prescription and then need something stronger to maintain that same clarity. So, so often nearsightedness has to do with environment and the visual environment that our kids are living in. Although there also is a genetic component and a component with UV light and vitamin D and getting outside. But uh, there's a reason why there is an alarming increase in the prevalence of nearsightedness, the magnitude of nearsightedness, and the age in which nearsightedness starts to emerge being earlier and earlier in our country and in countries that value education and technology. Uh, there, there's an interesting statistic that, that has come out recently that says uh, if both parents are nearsighted, their child has a one in two chance of becoming nearsighted. If one parent is nearsighted, that chi their child has a one in three chance. And if neither parent is nearsighted, a one in four chance. And what that means is our visual environment is contributing and causing this difficulty to engage visually with faraway tasks. And, and so you mentioned that kids are engaging with screens at too early of an age. And I, I think everyone listening is going to agree. Is there a specific age where it is better for children to start engaging? As late as possible. And, and obviously, as parents, we all pick our battles. But uh, I always share that if a child is uh, less than 18 months old, really the screen engagement should only be FaceTiming a loved one who they haven't seen in a long time and as limited as possible. Uh, if a child is 18 to, to 24 months old, I always recommend limiting to, to at less than 30 minutes a day. Two to five years old, less than an hour a day if possible, and over five, maximum two hours a day. But really, we should be taking vision breaks. We should be resting our eyes. We should be uh, employing the 20-20-20 rule, which means at taking a break at least every 20 minutes looking at something at least 20 feet away, at least for 20 seconds. And what that means is giving our eyes an opportunity to rest and ideally getting up and moving and allowing vision, which is intended for engaging with our three-dimensional three world and guiding movement uh, to become developed. And if we're stuck in a environment where we're engaging only with two-dimensional space, that really limits the life experiences that a child can have. And, you know, when you and I were children, we had to be dragged in from being outside because being outside was so much fun. And uh, we were all late to dinner, especially in, in the summertime. And now it's the polar opposite. Parents are having to drag their kids outside because they're stuck gaming and on screens. And it's, it's causing a very significant problem that, uh, my goal is to raise as much awareness about as possible so we can make the right decisions for our kids. So I love this idea of the vision break. Is that just for children or is that for us adults as well? That is for everybody. That is, uh, we should be resting our eyes, looking through the computer, over the computer, out a window and, and getting up and moving as often as possible. I give the analogy, if you were to squeeze your hand in a fist, after a few seconds, your hand starts to get tired. But if you were to then open your hand and close it and open it and close it, you could do that for a lot longer. Our focusing system, which is the inside muscles of our eyes responsible for clarity and making something clear and keeping it clear, it's a circular muscle. 
So it's a sphincter. And when it's engaged at a screen, the pupil gets smaller because the muscle's engaged. That's the equivalent of squeezing a fist. So if you were to look far away, you'll notice watching somebody, their pupil gets bigger because the muscle's relaxed. But the more flexibility we can maintain, uh, the less detrimental that near stress, near visual constriction is for our well-being. And so it, I'm trying to be practical about this in that we're having this interview online right now. Uh, our, our company has a remote first culture, so we have employees all over the country and, and our meetings take place on the computer, on, on, on Zoom, on Google Hangout. And we're not alone. This, this is the, our new world. And so with that said, the reality is I have to, we have to spend a lot of time on the screen, having meetings, doing work. Um, what should one do if this is just the reality of their work? What are the best practices? What can we do to try to mitigate all the, all the bad stuff we're doing to our, to our eyes? Absolutely great point that you bring up. Um, screens are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And rather than, you know, fight this, we need to accept this, but also be mindful in terms of uh, how we set up the visual ergonomics and the practices we, we all employ. So visual ergonomics, what that means is how we set up a workstation. Um, you know, the line of sight of a screen should be about 15 degrees below eye level so that the top line of text from a screen is almost in straight gaze. Uh, we shouldn't be closer than if we were to lean back and put our arm straight, the distance from the tip of our middle finger uh, to the screen. That's, that's the closest we should be. Arm's length to the screen. Yes. Um, brightness. I need to back up a little bit. I mean, truthfully, the larger the screen, the farther away, the better. So this gives us gives all your, your viewers an excuse to go buy, hopefully there's some Black Friday sale, sale still available, buy the biggest screen they can find. Uh, we can adjust the brightness on the computer, start really low, and then increase to about 40 to 65% max, basically as high as you want to keep it as low as you can. Um, but then also there's performance lenses. There's glasses that can be... Uh, especially prescribed by a, a eye doctor who is who understands visual stress and development and rehabilitation, which is often a combination of plus lens power, prism, tints, filters. It's completely individualized to the person, but basically to give the brain almost like a spot if you were lifting weights. It doesn't do the work for you, but it gives the brain a better opportunity for the eyes to work together and it relaxes focus slightly so that the brain has a better opportunity uh, to use the different processing systems uh, of, for vision. Uh, but then also vision therapy. Vision therapy is, is something that can be done to establish the robust visual system to support screen engagement. And it's one of the biggest kept secrets in eye care. We, we can get to a place where you can thrive in this environment staring at screens if we have trained the brain to use the eyes efficiently and the muscles efficiently and the inside and outside muscles of the eyes are working in synergy and they're on the same page rather than what so often occurs, this fight or this rivalry between which eye to use and which eye to focus and how to compensate for what we're asking ourselves to do 
on screens. Uh, but for, for so many people working from home and, and learning from home and all the changes that have happened post-COVID, uh, vision problems are absolutely on the front burner. And the headaches and the eye strain and the blurry vision and the sometimes dizziness or vertigo or nausea that can happen from staring at screens, uh, so much can be done from a, a simple level all the way up to an aggressive level. And even the right posture and, and having both feet on the ground and the right chair and the right lighting and uh, the right setup to set yourself up for success. But if that's not enough, then it's finding a, a neurooptometrist like myself who can design an individualized program to raise to your awareness what you're doing. So you can learn how to self-correct and self-monitor and make these bad habits no longer options. Well, let's talk about some of those best practices in terms of lighting and posture. Posture, sitting up as straight as possible. Uh, we talked about never being closer than arm's length from a screen. Uh, lighting, you know, natural light is ideal. And very often the, the fluorescent lights with the brightness and, and the, the blue light can be very difficult for the brain to contend with. We know that blue light causes uh, disruption with circadian rhythms and makes it so that very often symptoms are at least exacerbated from that standpoint. Blue light is not bad for us and getting outside and getting natural blue light is actually crucial to life. But this artificial high energy blue light that is just blasting our eyes and blasting our brain, uh, we should be limiting as, as much as possible uh, so that we can process information as efficiently as we can. So what's your take on a lot of the blue blockers you see being marketed? Well, first of all, there's lots of different levels of blue light blocking glasses. Uh, there's usually the, the lower cost blue light filters block a very narrow, short range of visible light. And usually the higher quality, more expensive blue blocking lenses block a much larger range. And blue light in general, like I mentioned, is, is not bad, um, but the artificial blue light is what we want to try and be careful uh, and be mindful in terms of how often we're, we're engaging with it. Blue light very often can contribute to light sensitivity and eye fatigue and eye strain and, uh, like I mentioned, a, a disruption of circadian rhythms. An increase in a portion of blue light can impact vision long term. There's not real good evidence that suggests that blue light harms the eyeball itself, but there is compelling evidence that you know circadian rhythms are disrupted and that it may be a driving force behind metabolic disorders. Uh, because there's these specialized cells in, in, our, in the back of our eye and on the retina that only respond to light that are responsible for releasing melatonin, which obviously is important for us all to sleep at night and, and get to sleep and stay asleep. If these cells are, are constantly overstimulated, that can significantly disrupt the, the sleep-wake sleep -wake cycle. cycle. Um, and it can cause headaches and it can cause migraines and, you know, signs that something should be done to at least explore blue light filters or those digital performance lenses that we spoke about would be uh, the heavy eyes that we experience staring at screens, the dry eyes, the headaches, the, 
the fatigue, the trouble focusing our eyes. Um, th there are studies that say the average person blinks 15 to 20 times a minute. And when we're engaging with screens, it goes down to like five times a minute, which means there is now dryness and irritation and actually ICD-10 diagnoses, medical diagnoses to support and qualify symptoms that are occurring from too much screen engagement and computer vision syndrome. It's crazy. So on that note, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to sit and talk for about an hour and then I'm going to have another meeting and then another meeting. And there are some days and this isn't unique to me that I'll find myself nonstop on a screen for hours at a time. Is there a certain time limit where if you don't take a break, you really start to negatively impact your vision and eyesight? So the 20-20-20 rule is, is important functionally. And that rule, just to repeat, is, is taking a break at least every 20 minutes for at least 20 seconds and looking at something at least 20 feet away. So just me, you know, just gazing over here, that's good enough. I would say... It's be a little bit odd if we break up, I'm going to have to break up my interviews every 20 minutes and start gazing, but... Well, and then engagement interpersonally in real life and in space is, is so crucial to so many aspects of cognitive development, emotional development, vision development. But again, also screens are ubiquitous and they're not going away. So vision breaks as often as you can. Uh, I always recommend drinking as much fluids as you can. So it forces you to get up and have to go to the bathroom and uh, obviously being locked in on a screen for an extended period of time, especially with something stressful or with, um, you know, time constraints or deadlines, you could go hours before taking a vision break. And the, the studies that have come out so far essentially share that beyond two hours for kids is detrimental. But I, again, everything in moderation and taking breaks and looking away and resting the eyes. And um, a lot of the patients I work with in vision therapy, we've trained them how to diverge their eyes and almost look through a screen and relax the focus so that it gives the, the similar benefits of getting up and looking away. But in a, an important call, the viewer maybe isn't aware of that. Yeah, wa walk us through that because I think everyone just perked up because there are meetings and you have to be present. And if you start gazing away, you know, that's going <laughs> to maybe not be perceived in a positive light. So walk us through, how do we do that? How do we fake this, if you will? Fake it till you make it. So there's two different types of eye muscles that I spoke about previously, the inside muscles and the outside muscles. Inside muscles are responsible for focus making something clear and keeping it clear. Outside muscles are for eye coordination, pointing the eyes at the same place, getting a unified single image that the brain can then perceive in depth. So some of these strategies would be to work on the, the inside muscles to essentially relax, focus, look soft, almost blur the world by uh, turning off that system. Now, most people don't have a rapport with space in front of them to be able to do that naturally. But you can learn how to focus and defocus the eyes based off of certain practices. Um, so some practices that can help 
help individuals get a better rapport with space with focus would be taking a target up close with small letters on it, bringing it, bringing it as close as they can until it gets a little blurry, stop, try and make it clear, and then bring it backwards. And you're almost tromboning that zone. The more you practice that, the closer you'll be able to get that image. And very often it's a lot easier to start with one eye covered. So just cover one eye, do the same thing you're tromboning in, notice where that distance is, do the same thing with the, the alternate eye. Ideally, it should be around the same plane where that first stress point occurs. But tromboning that zone can be very helpful, as well as building flexibility. So find that distance as close as you can where it's still clear, hold it, hold it for 10 seconds, and you'll feel that you're looking hard and you're constricting focus. And then after those 10 seconds, relax the eyes and look into the distance and throw the focus as far as way, as far as far away as you can for 10 seconds and visualize it being this soft sensation and you're almost using periphery and then come back to close. So you're going near, far, near, far. That's almost like push-ups for the focusing system. So many people can prolong the need for reading glasses or the prolong the need for near visual changes by exercising their mind and their eyes. And these aren't really eye exercises. It's we, we want learning to take place from these experiences so that the brain is rewired and develops conscious control over these systems. Uh, the same thing can be done with the outside muscles where we're taking a target as close as we can, making it single, making it also clear, holding that for, for X amount of time, and then relaxing and going into the distance. What do you mean by making it single and making it clear? So both of these, we should start with one eye at a time so that we can ensure eyes are equalized in terms of not having a competition over being easier to use one eye up close or easier farther away. Our brain always takes the path of least resistance and does what's easiest. So we want to equalize skills so that there's not a choice of which eye to use. Um, but if we were to have both eyes open and have something up close at midline, we'd have to converge our eyes. And we, that's using those outside muscles. We'd also have to focus our eyes to make it clear. If there's not a spatial mismatch in terms of where that is and what that is, then we can make it single and clear. But so often what we see from too much near visual engagement, especially from screens, is that we develop a way to compensate so we don't have to use these systems in synergy. And one of the most common profiles we'll see is somebody who's under converging their eyes. So they're almost perceiving something up close farther away than where it's located, but then often over focusing their eyes because they're trying to figure out how to look at a certain distance and the brain's sending the signals to engage, but it's using these systems independently, independently of, of each other because it's too hard to use them in unison. So on that note, you, know, you, you mentioned earlier the distinction between vision and eyesight. And most people go to the doc, they do their checkup, and they do this, and okay, I got 20-20, I'm good. How does one know if they have an issue, if they have 20-20 vision, they don't have trouble reading the paper, they don't have trouble seeing anything in the distance, but perhaps they have a vision problem? Sure. So th there are definitely signs and symptom, symptoms to be able to identify a strong likelihood of a treatable and functional vision problem. So for children, a lot of the symptoms would be 
difficulty keeping track on the page when they're reading, skipping words or skipping lines, uh, words moving or going double or in, into and out of focus. Like we spoke about before, difficulty concentrating, resistance to reading, a smart child who prefers to be read to rather than reading on their own, who prefers to have that sensory input coming from their ears, but not from that dominant sensory system of their eyes. Uh, that is a, a very clear symptom in that vision, when we learn how to read, we need to have the right visual skills and abilities in place to be able to point our eyes and focus our eyes and converge our eyes to take in and decode what's on the page. From an adult standpoint, headaches and eye strain and and fatigue and disrupted sleep and comprehension challenges with reading or with, with engagement with what's being processed or difficulty uh, maintaining posture that's appropriate. Very often we'll see somebody tilting their head or adjusting their body because it's hard to use their eyes together. And so honestly talking to your eye doctor and saying, here's what I'm experiencing are there ways to at least screen for these problems? And I always give share with, with doctors and with patients uh, three quick screening tests to be able to identify whether there is a potential vision problem that can impact learning or overall visual wellness. Uh, the first is to screen for convergence insufficiency. Convergence insufficiency is an incredibly um, prevalent diagnosis, especially now where we're asking so many of us to engage with visual demands that we don't have the visual system to support. So that would be taking a very expensive piece of equipment, take a pen or pencil, hold it at midline, and there should be one pen or pencil and it should be single and clear. Look at the tip of that and then you bring it down midline slowly and methodically until it becomes uncomfortable or until it splits into two. When it splits into two, that is by definition a convergence insufficiency. So many people are going to realize, wow, this is not effortless to the nose. I can't get it all the way close. And, you know, seeing two images around a foot away is something that obviously is going to impact reading and computer engagement because that's where most of that takes place. Uh, but convergence insufficiency is not an issue with eye muscle strength or length. It's coordination. And it's a spatial mismatch in that you're perceiving space in a different position than where the target is. So very often that causes double vision or words moving on the page or difficulty focusing, very high correlation there. Uh, the second test that we can do is take that same pen or pencil and slowly move it across midline laterally. And it should be smooth and effortless in each direction. You can even do the outline of an H or a figure eight and eye movements and head movements should be separate. We should not be moving our whole body and our whole head to follow that. And for most kids, that usually emerges in terms of the dissociation of those two by age seven or seven and a half. Um, if somebody has trouble following a target across midline, it's going to be a lot harder to follow words across the page without skipping words or, or losing their place or trouble tracking a ball and being able to have the depth that that allows us to know where that ball will be as it's approaching us. Um, and then the, the focusing uh, drill that we talked about before, the near-far focus, 
covering one eye, taking something with small letters, bringing it as close as we can until it's a little blurry. Same thing with the other eye, that those distances should be equal. And we should be able to bring them pretty close before there's disruption there. If there's not, then it's finding a, a neurooptometrist or a developmental optometrist who is specially trained in uh, the evaluation, but then also the treatment uh, for these challenges. So just to know for everyone listening, we'll, we'll put this video on YouTube so you can all see what Bryce is walking us through. Um, you know, in terms of focus, we've all known people who you have a conversation with and they just can't seem to focus. You know, you, you'll, you'll get eye to eye for a minute, but then the eyes quickly go somewhere else and somewhere else. And there are some people who are just, you know, bored or don't want to be talking with you. And that's why they're, their eyes are all over their place. But there are other people, and, and I, I, I know people, you know, good friends of mine who just can't do it. What's going on there in those situations? So, of course, I'm very biased. And vision, vision is our... I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. But any change in eye movement is a change in attention, whether that's voluntary or involuntary. If we have trouble controlling our eye movements, we're going to have trouble controlling our attention. So often, we have a disruption in terms of the visual processing pathways in our brain that make it hard to know what's in front of us and what's around us at the same time without selectively shifting between one or the other. These two pathways are wired together in the brain to know that I can look straight ahead at you and see the outside or the periphery of my computer screen without moving my eyes to the, those edges because we have the ability to see multiple distances at the same time. Under stress, in general, our pupils widen, we kind of lock in with this tunnel vision effect, and we become very focal, very central in our visual processing, as if we're looking through, as a complete exaggeration, paper towel holders. In certain environments where it's a very difficult conversation you're having, or there's a lot going on and somebody is more in their body rather than in the space, and maybe anxiety or, or certain other uh, behaviors are influencing how they're reacting, it's hard to look at you and everyone else without thinking, who am I going to talk to after? I want to get a drink. I, I'm hungry. And, and as our brain is processing all of this information, we very often visually selectively attend. And so to, to answer your question, I, I think in a social setting, somebody who's got difficulty maintaining eye contact unconsciously, it's hard for them to stay locked in on you without not attending to everything in the periphery. And this is one of the most common symptoms that emerges after a concussion or a head injury, where going to a mall or a grocery store or a place where there's all this sensory input around us is so overwhelming that the brain can't process all of that information. And it forces that person to retreat and kind of go into this overload where it's like, get me out of here. I think what you're describing is a very similar manifestation of that in life, where you probably also notice some people have piercing eye contacts, and they can't not look away. And that's somebody who can lock in with focal processing, but maybe they have more difficulty opening up periphery. And maybe there's somebody who is a type A personality and is really attending to detail, but 
big picture, like the ground rather than the figures is something that is difficult for them to behaviorally process. And so that can cause difficulty driving, especially at night in unfamiliar territory or we often see people with that profile lose their keys because they're looking for their keys here and here and here. But if they were to just open up periphery, and obviously it, it's a lot easier said than done, and that can be trained, you could say, oh, my keys are right here, but they're looking at it so focally. So visual behavior is definitely, uh, definitely influences overall behavior. As we talked about being under stress and locking in, makes total sense and can we use that to our advantage as a tool when we are stressed and anxious rather than locking in forcing yourself to when you're feeling under pressure let's say for example you're claustrophobic you're stuck in an elevator and so you know you hate this and you're there rather than locking in you try to use your peripheral vision to potentially mitigate or stop the panic attack you might have. Absolutely. And, and especially somebody who has been guided through the learning that needs to take place to have uh, that ability accessible. You know, the, the patients I work with, one of the first phases of treatment is raising to their awareness what they're doing so they can learn how to self-correct and self-monitor eliminate the mismatches, develop the skills and abilities to support those demands, but then making it automatic and unconscious and efficient where we can selectively attend. You know, when we hear athletes talk about being in the zone, there actually is something to that visually. And being in the zone is this heightened sense of peripheral awareness where we're so engaged with periphery that we can literally lock in beautifully to what's in front of us and almost seem like we're slowing down the ball to be able to prepare ourselves appropriately. And we know in terms of visual processing that occurs with that, it's beautiful integration of that central and peripheral processing pathways. But back to your scenario of being in an elevator, you know, we, you, we feel our, when when we feel claustrophobic and we feel our body's reaction to that stress and we tense up, a lot can be done with breath work. A lot can be done with uh, really relaxing focus and that defocus we were talking about and opening up periphery and, and shifting how we are taking in that experience. Um, but so often, you know, especially with with a training program, you can teach somebody how to lock into either one of these systems consciously, but then as it's rewired and as roadblocks are removed, it's something that literally can happen all the time where you're already functioning at a really high level, but then you can even elevate that if you are a, uh, if you're skiing down the mountain and you really need to lock in what's in front of you and the turns that are coming, or if you're a, uh, an IndyCar driver and, and that reaction time for what's changing so rapidly is something that you can confidently navigate based off of the brain's ability to process that information effectively. You know, it, it, it seems to me, given the mental health epidemic, th there's a real need for real-time tools, if you will, so that when anxiety or stress strikes, because it inevitably does, 
you have something with you that you can incorporate immediately. And meditation is a great tool, but depending on which type of meditation, some some forms of meditation require uh, quiet space, time, uh, warm up, if you will. Uh, breath work is great because activate it immediately. And, and I think vision is a phenomenal tool, but we don't really seem to talk about vision as part of our anxiety or stress mitigation uh, is part of being being part of that toolkit. Why? And it should be, right? It absolutely should be. It's our dominant sensory system. And there's more areas of our brain dedicated to processing vision than all of our other senses combined. Uh, seeing the dramatic influence COVID has had on so many people in so many ways, but especially on vision with these with a more sedentary environment and more screen time. Um, Pre-COVID, if I, if I was to work with somebody and I couldn't help them 100%, I didn't wanna work with them. And now I recognize that so many people are struggling in so many ways that even helping somebody 10% or 15% or 30% can have huge, huge impacts on quality of life, happiness, and preventing things that are avoidable. Um, and so I developed actually a program called ScreenFit, which was, has only been launched for about a month now, but designed to take tired, blurry, strained eyes and turn them into a lot more HD clear vision. But essentially, it's a vision wellness program uh, that trains and rehabilitates the visual skills and abilities necessary to support these high visual demands of screen usage. And it's designed to to teach you how to relieve the stress that technology places on our visual system on a daily basis, but also empower you with the tools to support healthy vision habits and efficient use of the eyes together as a team. And I kind of relate this at, to a workout program at home with sit-ups, push-ups, and air squats, but you know it's not going to get you to be a pro athlete, but it's going to at least establish founda the foundation and for many people, dramatically decrease symptoms so that screens are less terrible uh, for our brains and our overall development. So on that note, if I had to simplify breath, for example, for someone who's, who's trying to get help themselves out of a stressful situation or when they feel anxiety coming on, I would say, you know, inhale for two, exhale for four. Just try to slow it down and, and, and make sure the exhale is longer than the inhale. And just and, and there are so many different practices, but if I had to simplify it, if I had, you know, having a conversation with someone in an elevator, this is what you need to do. With vision, is it as simple as when you feel anxiety coming, when you are stressed, try to be mindful of not locking in and try to embrace your peripheral vision if I were to oversimplify this? Absolutely. And, you know, there's a couple practices that have been in place for a hundred years. One, palming. Uh, you rub your hands together, you create a lot of heat. Then you ideally near a desk, close your eyes, put your hands over your eyes, block out any of the light that's there. And the warmth and the relaxation almost acts as like meditation for the eyes. I think that can be really helpful. Uh, eye stretches, covering up one eye, looking as far up to the ceiling as you can, hold it for 10 seconds, as far down to the floor as you can, hold it for 10 seconds, left, right, the diagonal, same thing right eye as you're doing for left eye. 
um, and even eye rotations, you know, almost doing a circle around your eye as fast as you can, both directions. I mean, our muscles get tense and life is tense. And so often vision and the adaptations that occur are in response to this stress. So I think for many people, being mindful and doing these practices can help some and for others help dramatically. And then others, you need, you know, more tailored individualized help. And that's where um, specialists who are board certified in vision therapy come into play. So in terms of these exercises, assuming safe to do every day or every other day, what, what do you recommend for the for, for the, the average listener who's saying, all right, I just want to have this tool in my toolkit so I can use it when I feel anxious? Absolutely. I mean, I would say as in the scenario where you feel anxious, it's in your back pocket, it's always there. But from a standpoint of, of what is sustainable and, and smart to do on a daily basis, I would say five times a week. Um, 10 to 15 minutes at, you know, at max. And for people with eye coordination problems or lazy eyes or eye turns, I think it's really, really important to always start one eye at a time so that you're not embedding a bad habit that's in place. And, you know, doing a lot of these with two eyes requires careful coordination of those systems, which isn't always there for a lot of people. And these problems are increasing dramatically just based off of all that we've discussed today. Um, but kind of like going to the gym for your body, we can go to the gym for our eyes and for our mind. And, and yet that's, uh, for some reason, if we can, if we can train our body, we can't train our eyes. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet. That's how a lot of the medical world views this and how a lot of, um, Mankind views some of these problems because there's so few of us who have this expertise and especially from a intervention of eye disease perspective, there's a lot of eye disease out there. And so a lot of eye doctors are locked into their specific area of the eye that they're specialists in or, you know, there's new advancements in surgical procedures and medications, which are wonderful for helping a lot of people, but a lot of problems are actually avoidable and, uh, having a, a functional approach absolutely can complement a medical and structural approach for anything in health and wellness. So you mentioned functional approach. What role do nutrition and fitness play here? Huge role. Um, you know, from a n nutrition and, and what we eat, those, those are ingredients for our body in terms of how we function. And we're literally made based off of how how we eat and what we eat. So there are so many foods that are phenomenal for overall eye health and overall mental clarity. Uh, Omega-3 fatty acids are fantastic uh, for having the outer tear film be more viscous so your own tears don't evaporate as quickly for cognition and brain health. Um, and you know that's ideally in a supplement form, but also uh, the cold water fish are really uh, have a lot of very high quality omega-3s in them. Um, dark green leafy vegetables are fantastic. Um, they have zeaxanthin in them. They've got lutein in them. Great for uh, the sweet spot of our eye, the macula, the area that helps us uh, see 2020 with HD clear vision. Uh, vitamins A, C, E, antioxidants. Uh, they can help decrease the risk of 
of macular de degeneration and cataract formation. Um, eggs are phenomenal, filled with lutein and choline. CoQ10, nuts like almonds and, and sunflower seeds, oysters, which are high in, in zinc. Um, I mean, so, so much of what we do for our visual system uh, can be influenced by from nutrition. And especially from a head injury standpoint, having our brains function on ketones and operate on ketones rather than on sugar or insulin can help with mental clarity, can help decrease a lot of the neuroinflammation that occurs after a concussion, and can at least influence brain fog and um, visual snow and then blurriness and dizziness and a lot of these symptoms from head injury that manifest within the visual system. Before we go to uh, head injuries and concussion recovery, which I think is so interesting, um, does fitness play a role here? You know, you outlined all these great uh, nutrients and vitamins and, and minerals that, that we need uh, often found in foods, but if not in supplement form, uh, but does fitness play a role? I absolutely do think it, fitness plays a role. And our motor coordination is the foundation from which we then learn how to develop our visual system. And fitness and exercise are outlets for stress, for, um, for happiness, for, for so many areas. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the symptoms that occur from staring at screens all day, we got to get our body moving. We got to get our bodies engaging with the three-dimensional world that we live in and vision is designed to guide movement and movement is so important to developing periphery and to understanding uh, how to improve eye movements especially early on based off of what's in our world around us uh, to be able to derive meaning and then direct the appropriate action. So I'm thinking to myself jumping rope is probably a great exercise for eye health. A great exercise, but do you ever think about where you where you're looking when that's occurring? I'm looking in the mirror to make sure I'm I am jumping properly. I would say most people um, probably have more difficulty jumping rope, especially with uh, double unders or more coordinated movements if their vision is involved. Because the more, the more aware of vision we are, sometimes with an activity like that, that really requires timing and integration of so many sensory systems, we almost want to do it based off of feel and uh, synchronicity. Whereas visually, you know, a lot of times locking into one position or one position on the wall can really help us uh, motor plan more easily. Similar with like back squats or movements that require for great form, um, visualizing the movement before you're executing it. But then once it's occurring, really f focusing on feeling tone and, and what you're trying to uh, initiate before it happens. So is there a, a really one great exercise that sticks out to you that is great cardiovascular or, or, or for muscle development and also good for your eyes? Absolutely. I would say walking or running to me is uh, maybe not the absolute best thing for overall health, but from a vision standpoint, I, I always tell patients to go on active mindful walks where 
as you're going down the street, you're noticing the mailbox to the left and you're noticing the house to the right and we're, we're engaging that periphery that we keep talking about. But very often we can see that mailbox or that house, but it's really hard to see them both at the same time without really uh, being intentional with opening up periphery. So walking and watching the world move past us develops optic flow or the ability to get our vestibular system and our visual systems to be on the same page. And when they're not on the same page, that often is what's the root cause of motion sickness or um, the sensation of something, something static and something else moving in our brain having difficulty filtering that information. Um, and so I think any exercise that gets your vestibular system activated as well as your visual system is wonderful. And maybe I'll describe the vestibular system for those who aren't aware of it. Yes, please do. I, I am one of those people who are not aware. Uh, and, and the vestibular system along with the visual system are hot topics, especially with, with concussion and head injury these days. So I think the best description of the visual of the vestibular system is when you go to the mall and you walk in and you see that first map that says Nordstrom's here to the left and Macy's is straight and the food court's to the right. And then there's that big red star that says you are here. The vestibular system is that internal orientation system and the roadmap of life that lets you know which way is up and which way is down, and which way is left and right, and really uh, is intimately related to our vision and our postural stabilizing mechanism so that we can be in a car and know that the steering wheels in front of us and the, and the uh, dashboard is not moving, even though our vestibular system is activated saying all the stuff around us is moving. And for those who uh, get motion sick in the back seat of a car, but maybe not while they're driving or if they're reading or on a tablet in a car, those are really good signs that uh, that can be dramatically improved, if not eliminated with vision therapy because the visual and vestibular systems are sending conflicting signals that the brain can't put together and process. And so when we're, when we're reading or when we're on a tablet, those central focal eye movements are overriding that peripheral activation. And almost like a seesaw, those systems are going back and forth. That's the root cause of, of 80% of motion sickness and is improvable with, with the right treatment. And so, Natural light has come up in this conversation. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned sleep as well, and we all know the role that natural light plays in, in getting a good night's, good night's sleep. A you know, good night's sleep starts in the morning and getting natural light. Can you talk about how critical natural light is in terms of our overall eye health? And, and is there a bare minimum in your opinion? I would say similar to a lot of what we spoke about, spoke about today, everything in moderation. Screens, indoor use, moderation, we need to be getting outside as much as possible um, for setting circadian rhythms appropriately, for getting vitamin D and, and the activation that occurs when our eyes actually take in UV light. When our pupils are, and the in, pupils, the inside black hole of our eye, when we go outside, the pupil gets small as a protective mechanism to not allow as much light to come in to have to filter. And alternatively, in the dark, it gets larger. When we go outside, we're essentially shutting down that apparatus to take in light, yet still plenty comes in. 
and our focusing system is the muscle behind the pupil. So again, when we're on screens, the pupil gets small because we're looking close. When we look into the distance, it gets larger. Careful utilization of our pupils and accurate use of our pupils is a very clear indication of autonomic dysfunction or uh, challenges with the fight or flight system and how our brain is, is regulating our body. Being it outside in the light absolutely and natural light absolutely helps stabilize that. But there are studies that say myopia or nearsightedness is intimately relinked to not enough UV light or not enough getting outside. And, you know, I think grounding and, and the right type of light at the right times uh, can be really, really effective for uh, just allowing for equilibrium in so many of the sensory systems of our body. And, and right time, I'm assuming, is in the morning and not late at night. I mean, I think definitely in the morning uh, to set the circadian rhythms. But honestly, I, I would take getting outside as much as you can, regardless of the time. And especially for kids, you know, being able to, to explore and develop the visualization that comes with that, that's lost with so many kids these days. And even just playing ball sports, you know, we learn how to apply these eye movements to fast moving space and get the feedback of, oh, I swung that racket too quickly because I thought the ball was in a different place. And we can self-regulate and self-monitor self based off of that or riding a bike and getting our visual midline to be coincident with our body midline. So many of these tasks are lost with kids these days, but so important in terms of um, living the best lives that we can. So you mentioned uh, concussion recovery. Uh, I've never, I'm not an expert in concussions or re concussion recovery, but I have yet to hear about the role of vision therapy here. There are more areas of our brain dedicated to processing vision than all of our other senses combined. And about two thirds of the neurons entering our brain actually originate from our eyes. So it's almost impossible not to have a head injury without vision being impacted. It's just a matter of, of at what level. Um, the damage that occurs after a concussion or a head injury is at such a uh, microcellular level that MRIs and CT scans very often don't pick up any problems with a, with a concussion because what occurs after a concussion is the functional pathways and functional systems are disrupted. And very often that ability to know what's in front of us and what's around us, that central and peripheral processing no longer is functioning the way that it should. Or going to environments that have a lot of busy, crowded periphery can really be disruptive. Uh, with, with vision therapy, we can eliminate the, the mismatches, but establish order from all of the disorder that has occurred from the brain operating in a different way than it's wired. After a head injury, um, the old school philosophy was, you know, you got your bell rung, get back in there into life, or the opposite, go sit in a dark room for a long amount of time. And we are learning now that no two head injuries are the same. And every head injury has different implications in terms of how life is impacted. 
but the careful eye movements that are needed for reading and engaging with screens and understanding how to process all the information that's up close is almost always disrupted from a head injury. And with vision therapy, we can literally rewire the brain to change how somebody is using their visual system and establish uh, a support system to, to meet the visual demands of life. So vision therapy is one of the missing pieces uh, along with vestibular therapy for so many people to return to learn and return to life uh, so that these vision problems don't linger uh, for extended periods of time. Fascinating. So in closing, what's the one thing that all of our listeners should incorporate into their day-to-day right now that is going to have an impact on their eyes and vision, no, no matter where they are, whether both are perfect or maybe they're struggling, what's the one thing regardless of their, of their, where they are on their, their journey that they should incorporate? The one takeaway should be that eyesight and vision are separate entities. And while we're staring at screens, we should be taking as many vision breaks as possible so that uh, our eyes and brain are functioning a little more efficiently together than they would if we are not. So 20, 20, 20, at least every 20 minutes, take a break for at least 20 seconds and look at something 20 feet away. Vision breaks are crucial to functioning at uh, a high level for long, longer periods of time. Excellent. Bryce, thank you so much. Appreciate you having me on.